Thanks, Dara. Um, I always like to point out that my PhD is in chemistry. It's worth, it's a very obscure area of physical chemistry, and I only know of one other person that, is actually, that actually worked in that area that I know of, and that was Angela Merkel. But that's all I have in common with her. <laughs> I want to start with this image. That is a typical page of thousands upon thousands that have been digitised by the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland. It is the signatures for the Ulster Covenant. What makes it interesting from my point of view, place of signing, Waterford. Four days after the official signing of the Covenant in Ulster on September the 28th, there was a service organised in Christchurch Cathedral in Waterford where the local loyalist community gathered. About 40 men and 18 women signed the Covenant or the uh, Women's Declaration. Others present expressed regret because they felt they couldn't sign it. William Dobbin, the governor of Warford Jail, was sorry he couldn't sign it, but he felt precluded by his office. In theory, the Covenant should only have been signed by people born in Ulster or resident in Ulster. Many of those had been born in Ulster, but some were not, had not been. They had been born in Waterford. That's October 1912. And in a way, it's a tip of, a, of an iceberg, of a loyalist iceberg. And about 16, 17 months later, there was another incident in that cathedral. This is February 1914, and the dean called for a service of prayer, and I quote, to avert the dreadful impending calamity of home rule, unquote. One of the nationalist local newspapers sent along a reporter who stood outside the cathedral and carefully noted the names of those going in, and they were published in the local newspaper. As you can imagine, that was just to a unionist mill. Bonner Law raised it in the House of Parliament, in the House of Commons, a few days later. There was to be a service of prayer of peace. Anywhere except in Ireland, one would have thought that that was harmless, but by those constituents of the Honourable Member, it was regarded as no offence. And the Honourable Member was John Redmond. So this was a lovely piece of ammunition to throw at John Redmond in his constituency, you had what was deemed to be an example of naked sectarianism. And in a way, you know, it shows that underneath the surface, in a place like Waterford, where you wouldn't expect it so far from Ulster, there are underlying tensions at times. Now, the loyalist community in Waterford, between city and county, is about 6% of the population, about 5,000 in total mostly Church of Ireland, but also some Presbyterian, some Methodist, and a small but very influential Quaker community, one of whose uh, gifts to the world was the invention of the cream cracker. Jacobs was originally from Waterford. Very influential economically, controlled most of the industry in the city. Very influential politically at local level, where Although elected as independents, they were inclined 
to cooperate totally and fully with the what was called the Ratepayers Party, which was dominated by the United Irish League, which were Redmondites, and they shared in common a desire to keep the rates low, as low as possible. Prominent spokes leaders, Henry Stuart O'Hara, I'll come back to a couple of those, but very importantly from, if you like, the research point of view, it had its own voice, and a very outspoken voice, the Warford newspaper, the Loyalist newspaper, the Warford Standard, edited by Robert Wally. And they were not slow to pronounce their, um, their opinions on anything and everything. The most outspoken speaker, um, advocate for the Warford Loyalist community was undoubtedly Dr. Henry Stuart O'Hara, Church of Ireland Bishop of the combined diocese of Warford, Lismore, Cashel and Emley. He'd been born in Coleraine, he'd been ordained there, had served there, was later Dean of Belfast and was elected Bishop of Waterford in 1901. A year later, he was back in Coleraine giving a sermon and he was quoted, At present I am placed in a part of the country where our people are very poor a part overshadowed by a dark cloud of ignorance and superstition, a part made miserable by wicked and violent agitation, and I know how our little flocks in their Protestant churches have to struggle for mere existence. When that was reported in the newspapers, it caused uproar in Waterford. Everybody rushed to deny it. When he was interviewed for the uh, Waterford Standard, he only, said, he only made two points. No reporter had got his permission to reproduce his remarks. And secondly, they were words for a Protestant people, for a Protestant audience in a Protestant church. There were no business of any Roman Catholics. So I talk about digging a hole and stop digging. Now he did modify as time went on, but he continued to be very, very, very outspoken. The other main leader in the city was the man with the top hat, Sir William Gough, Davis Gough. Very important businessman, very prominent and very popular in the city. He was very popular in particular because of his promotion of sports. Out of his own money, he built a cycle track for people in the city. He subsidised the local cycle club. He was very prominent and apparently very well liked. So were the products of one of his businesses, the uh, brewery. But he normally the leadership in East Waterford would have gone to the Marcus of Waterford. But at that stage, the Marcus of Waterford in 1912 was only nine years old. So William Gough Davis was the de facto leader. In the west of the county, normally it would be the Duke of Devonshire, but the, the Duke at that time spent very little time in Lismore. So Sir John Keane emerged as the leader of unionism in West Waterford, of loyalism in West Waterford. Um, he was actually very active locally and again quite popular. He served on Waterford County Council, himself and another prominent loyalist, Sir Gerard Villiers Stewart. They served on the County Council and were very prominent in promoting advanced agriculture. 
He started a number of factories in his town of Capoquin, and he was, of course, later a member of the Senate and continued to be a member of the Senate even after the dissolution of the Free State Senate because de Valera reappointed him to the Senate um, later on. So they were, if you like, the voices of it. But the dominant figure in Waterford was John Redmond. Redmond dominated Waterford. He visited the city on average once a year. Every time he came, you'd have parades, you'd have addresses of welcome. It was like a royal visit. There was tremendous excitement every time he came. Now, the Home Rule Crisis and the local response. In 1912, first one was you had the National Synod of the Church of Ireland, which after a lot of debate, many of the uh, attendees saying, this is a political issue, we should not get involved. But however, they voted to oppose it. And the first overt opposition was in Cork, where there was a meeting of the local loyalist community a public meeting, very well attended. And Sir William Gough and Dr Stuart O'Hara both attended. And obviously inspired by that, they decided to hold a public meeting in Waterford to oppose the Home Rule Bill. And they wrote to the clerk of Waterford City Council asking for use of the city assembly rooms in what we would call the city hall. The mayor wrote back in person, assuring him that he could have the use of the hall for any purpose whatsoever except opposing home rule, which of course again was seized upon as an example of what would happen as soon as the nationalists got power. There would be blatant and overt discrimination. The meeting went ahead in the grounds of Sir William Gough's mansion on the outskirts of Waterford and was, by all accounts, a huge success. Um, O'Hara speaking said, and this would be a constant theme of all the speeches, to separate home rule. First of all, home rule would lead to separation. It would not stop at home rule. It would ultimately lead to separation, no matter what John Redmond said. And secondly, a separate Ireland would be a very poor Ireland and would be a very weak Ireland. So they were campaigning on the separation issue and on the economic issue. That meeting, in a way, was the highlight of and the signing of the Ulster Covenant of the uh, um, opposition in Waterford. Thereafter, as the Home Rule Bill made its way through Parliament over and over again, you get more and more this feeling. And in particular, in 1914, they're being abandoned. They're being abandoned by the Ulster Protestants, even though it hasn't been overtly said yet, and they're, re they're resorting to prayer. You get this with Henry Stuart O'Hara constantly preaching. Our only refuge is in prayer. Nothing else is left to save us. There was also a peculiar one. There were some Ulster links. The Ulster Volunteers approached Field Marshal Lord Roberts to provide to become Commander-in-Chief of the UVF. Roberts had huge links with Waterford. 
Roberts was in the middle of his own campaign for conscription in Britain, so he declined. But he did write back and say, I have been a long time finding a senior officer to help in the Ulster business, but I think I have got one now. His name is Lieutenant General Sir George Richardson, KCB, etc., etc., etc. He is a retired Indian officer, active and in good health. He is not an Irishman, but has settled in Ireland. And where did he settle? There he is, Sir George Richardson. He settled in Lismore with his brother-in-law, another retired officer, in a house provided by the Duke of Devonshire. As the situation deteriorated, the RIC, the local RIC, really, really get worried. And they're constantly looking for more and more constables to provide around-the-house protection for Sir George Richardson, who seems to spend more of his time in Lismore than he ever did in Ulster. And that, but you have that local thing. But you also have another local thing, and it shows you way how fears can spread. Emily Usher, the Ushers were very much a liberal Protestant family and were inclined towards home rule. They found themselves being excluded from all the local social activities. Emily Usher wrote a fabulous unpublished memoir of this whole revolutionary period. And she talks about her servants saying that the servants in the other big houses were being forced to form a, a unit of the UVF in Waterford, and they were afraid of being forced to join. Pure rumour, but rumours can spread. Now, by the summer of 1914, there is nothing, it appears, would stop the um, outbreak of uh, civil war. As members of Warford County Council, both Sir John Keane and Sir Gerard Villiers Stewart tried to block the establishment of the volunteers in West Waterford, failed. So it looks as if it's drifting, and then suddenly the First World War intervenes. Now I'm not going to go through the experience in the First World War. Suffice it to say, it is well summarised, sorry, but at the outbreak of it, you had almost the Irish equivalent of the Union Sacré in France. Down in Waterford, prominent loyalists start offering their services after Redmond's speech to the Irish volunteers. Sir Charles Gordon, or sorry, Colonel Charles Gordon, Richardson's brother-in-law, writes to the volunteer, Morris Moore, saying he would love to be the officer inspecting the volunteers in Waterford. He's willing to offer his services. He gets no answer. Two months later, he's appointed commander of the UVF in Belfast. So, you know, a man can hop and jump as good as the rest. But really, I'm not going to go into the First World War period. Suffice it to say, the sacrifice is there in every Protestant church in Waterford. That one there is in Lismore Parish for king and country. And they're all on the memorial wall in, in Dungarvan. Now, while the First World War was going on, though, the Warfare Standard was keeping its eye on the main business, Home Rule. In 1915, when Edward Carson joins the Cabinet, the Warfare Standard proudly proclaims, Home Rule is dead. Carson will not allow it as a member of the government. 1916, after the Rising, Lloyd George 
tries to hold talks. They collapse because the Southern Unionists don't buy into Lloyd George promising this, that and the other thing. The gratitude of the country and of our empire is due to the statesmanship of our Unionist leaders who have caused the collapse of those talks. And even the convention, which is the centenary of which is next week, let us keep a watchful eye on the convention, lest anything come of it. It then goes on to say, don't worry, nothing will come of it. You know, but it's keeping an eye on the main thing. Now, by 1918, there are significant changes in Waterford. Dr. Stuart O'Hara retired and went back to Coleraine to live. William Gough Davis died in 1917. So there's changes in the local loyalist leadership, particularly in the Warford Standard. Michael Whalley, due to ill health, sold his interest in the paper to David Boyd. David Boyd, a wonderful pioneering radical journalist later, Belfast-born, Presbyterian, member of the IRB. Now, I doubt very much if he mentioned that at his job interview, but he did get the job. He tones down the paper considerably. There's strong support for Captain Redmond, almost as the lesser of two evils, certainly the lesser of two evils. He always campaigns in his British Army uniform as a captain of the Irish Guards in Waterford, in the Shin, against Sinn Féin. And I could talk forever about the by-elections. Suffice it to say, there was no discussion of policy, but the Redmondite supporters could turn around at the end of it and say, Warford was invaded by Sinn Féin supporters. We have met the invaders stick with stick, stone with stone, and bottle with bottle, and we have driven them back. That's electioneering for you. Dr. Miller replaced Henry Stuart O'Hara. Born in Limerick, all his ministry was in Munster. He's much quieter. He's much more resigned. During this period now, and just want to cover this period quickly, the change in loyalist leadership. In 1920-21, you have arms levies in West Warford where the IRA are strong. They're imposed on everybody. Not everybody pays. There is no overt violence against loyalists or sectarian violence against Protestants that I have been able to find. Two ex-British Army soldiers are killed in this period. One is killed in a brawl between Redmondite supporters and Sinn Féin supporters in Warford City. A riot between the two if you like, opposing nationalists. And the other is a retired British soldier who had served in the Boer War, who shot in Dungarvan, allegedly because he was a spy. Both of those were Catholics. William Morn almost certainly did not provide any information to the British. And his whole killing is very, very uh, suspect. Emily Usher. When the local RIC barracks was burnt out, the garrison, the four policemen went to live, went, were transferred to Capo Quinn. The families were given shelter by Emily Usher in her big house. Two days later, she got a letter, 
allegedly from the local IRA saying, get rid of those or we'll burn you out. A day later, a knock came to the door. Half a dozen local IRA men who said they'd been sent to guard the house because they had heard about this threat. So there's certainly no sectarianism or violence, or violence there. The truth, you get the fear of the unknown. So there's, during the War of Independence, I have not found any evidence of violence against the loyalists per se. However, the truce, the treaty, and it's very, very interesting, the welcome for the oath and the membership of the empire, that's greeted in Warford. The very things that caused the split in the Dáil debates is greeted by the loyalists, at least in Warford, as great, it gives us something to hang on to. They were hugely important in terms of reassurance to the local loyalists. And the war for standard leads off. We have much to offer the new state. Let us give it in full measure. However, 1922-23, particularly the first six months, you have complete and utter breakdown in law and order. You have opportunistic violence targeted against loyalists, attempts by IRA to protect some victims. There are over 40 claims against the Southern Irish Loyalist Compensation Committee, the British government one. There are over 40 claims from Warford. This is just a random example. Henry Piper, manager of flour mills, told his job must go to a, national, uh, to a, a supporter of Sinn Féin. Hugh Jones boycotted. He had been Crown Solicitor for Wexford. His practice was in Warford. He's boycotted. He claims his business did not recover until 1927. William Cordoner, a Presbyterian, cycle agent, also had holiday homes in Tremor. Notices go up, attached to the doors. of Anybody who rents these holiday homes will be shot. William Rowe, Methodist. Come back to him. Benjamin Schofield, Church of Ireland, refused to pay the levy. Edward Claxton, again a cycle merchant, he's warned to get out of Waterford. William Rowe is interesting because we have a copy of the letter. We will clear all the bloody Protestants out of this town also. By order, OC Battalion um, IRA. And then, remember this is your uh, sure that problem with the spelling, William Rowe who was shot. So you had those, but they appear to be opportunistic. When David Boyd, who was condemning them in his newspaper, these attacks, is threatened, the IRA send men to guard his house. And they're trying to crack down on some of these violence, but they appear to have been opportunistic. But they certainly had an effect. When the Civil War came to Waterford, is part of the relic of the siege. What was interesting is the Warford Standard called on its readers to support the Free State in all its endeavours, to support the Free State Army. So at this roadblock in Capaquin, is he responding, that civilian, and there are a number of other civilians with arms, is he uh, responding 
by helping the Free State Army. We don't know because we don't know who that civilian is. But it is a possibility. Now, in February 1923, six big houses were burnt within a week, including that of Sir John Keane. John Keane had become a senator. John Keane had his foresight to send most of his furniture and valuables for storage in Cork, and they survived. All of the six houses were rebuilt, including Cumra House, which was the home of two old ladies, Letitia and Caroline Fairholm. In their application for compensation, they make it clear that they had been loyalists, they had proclaimed their loyalism, and there were no doubt that their home was burnt in February 1923, purely because they were loyalists. Despite the inadequate compensation from the Free State, all of those houses were rebuilt. The Fairholme House, Cumra House, later had its moment of fame because that's where the Dutch Nazi war criminal Peter Menton lived later. So um, it is still there, Cumra House. Now, at the end of that decade, the non-Catholic population had decreased by almost 40%. Half of them emigrated for social or economic reasons. There was continued involvement economically. The houses were rebuilt, the Gough Davises, the Henry Fords, all of those prominent merchants, manufacturers, industrialists in Warford continued on. And John Keane, Senator John Keane, gave a huge lead by his continued involvement politically. He was excellent in that sense of continuing to be involved and was a leading voice in the Senate there. Now, I would sum up the changed circumstances for loyalists with two quotations. One from a resident magistrate in Tipperary, but I think it applied to so many of them. I'd been brought up under the Union Jack and had no desire to live under any other emblem. And he just went back, went to live in Scotland. And that's the same, I think, in so many decolonizations. People say, I don't want nothing to do with this. I'm out of here. The Gough Davises stayed. And Anita Gough Davis, who was very young at the time, her recall, Protestants continued to be the upper class, but they no longer had political power. They, re they remained the same, but everything around them had changed. So that, if you like, is the story of that unsettled community. Thanks.